If you're visiting with us today, we are happy and honored to have you. And please come back anytime that you can be with us here at McCoynsville. Appreciate Brother James and his prayer this morning. Uh, very good. In a nationwide survey taken several years ago, 89% of American adults say that they believe in the existence of heaven. In that same survey, 73% of American adults say they believe in the existence of hell. But that 73% is misleading because people differ in how they define hell. In the survey, when hell is defined as an actual location, a place of torment where people will be sent, only 31% believe in hell. Most Americans today believe that Satan is just a, a symbol for evil. A cartoon character dressed in red with horns and a pitchfork. Only 27% believe that Satan is a real being. Now, one likely reason, one possible reason that a sizable number of people don't believe in the reality of hell is because of what's happened to that word in our vocabulary. You know, the word hell is mainly used by people today as a curse word, a profanity. Christians rarely mention the subject of hell in their conversations. Many pulpits today have grown cold on the subject of hell. Gone are the days of fire and brimstone sermons. And too often, What's taken their place are little feel-good sermonettes that people would rather hear. A few years ago, a denominational pastor was quoted in U.S. News and World Report saying this, My congregation would be shocked to hear a sermon on hell. Warning others about the judgment to come is not popular. Brother Wendell Winkler was a well-known preacher in the church. And Brother Winkler told a story about preaching in a gospel meeting at a congregation in Oklahoma. 
after he had preached a sermon one night on the subject of hell, the local preacher, who had been there 22 years, told Brother Winkler that in those 22 years, the church there had held 44 gospel meetings, two per year. And during those meetings, a total of 527 sermons had been preached. Wendell Winkler's sermon was said to be the first one on the subject of hell that they had heard in 22 years of gospel meetings. So this morning, if you haven't already figured it out, like it or not, we're going to study a lesson on hell. Today we're continuing the series of sermons that I'm calling Questions That Deserve Answers. And the question that deserves an answer today that we're going to study and think about is the question, how can a loving God send people to hell? How can a loving God send people to hell? You know, one of the biggest problems that many people today have with the true Christian faith is the idea that a loving God would send people to hell. Other things about the Christian faith make sense to them. They like the idea that a loving God created the world. They like the idea that a loving God became flesh and dwelt among us. They like the idea that a loving God wants us to live with him forever in heaven. But they don't like the idea that a loving God would send people to hell for all eternity. They wonder if the punishment fits the crime. They wonder if any sin deserves eternal punishment forever. And they wonder if that kind of place could be the work of a loving God. The problem of reconciling eternal punishment with God's love has also had an impact on the religious world today. For example, some religions have totally rejected the doctrine of eternal punishment in hell. Like, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, and the Worldwide Church of God. They don't believe it, and they don't teach it. And even churches of Christ have had their advocates of that false doctrine. So as we study the question this morning, how can a loving God send people to hell? We need to answer two questions first, starting with this one. 
what is hell going to be like? How can hell be described? Believe it or not, Jesus taught more about hell than he talked about heaven. And he described it more vividly. The most loving man that ever lived said more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. The word hell in the Greek is the word Gehenna. The word Gehenna referred to the garbage dump outside the Jerusalem walls during the time of Jesus. And Jesus often used that word as a reference to hell. In the Old Testament, and still today, that area outside the southern wall of Jerusalem is called the Valley of Hinnom. And we saw that area on the Holy Land trip. It's the lowest point in the city of Jerusalem, both geographically and you could say morally. During the time of the divided kingdom, when the people of Judah began to worship false gods, and offer child sacrifices to those gods. They did it right there in the valley of Hinnom. And because of the, the awful, horrible things that were done there, the valley of Hinnom was cursed by the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 7.31, he refers to the people burning their sons and daughters in the fire, child sacrifices. And in verse 32, he called it the valley of slaughter. And because of what went on there, it later on became a despised and rejected part of Jerusalem. And he was turned into a place to dump and burn the city's garbage. Dead animals from the temple sacrifices were thrown there to rot and be eaten by worms and maggots. Trash was burned there. Smoldering fires were burning there all the time, day and night. The city's sewage was emptied there. It was stinking, ugly, burning, crawling with worms. It was full of rot, full of disease. In Jesus' day, the mention of the word Gehenna would turn people's stomachs. But the real hell, the real hell was not outside the walls of Jerusalem. And the Gehenna garbage dump did not begin to describe the horrors of actual hell. 
Jesus used it as a, as a visual image to describe a place that's in a different category than anything we know today. Here is just some of what the loving Jesus said about hell or Gehenna. In Matthew 5, 22, Jesus warns us not to use abusive language against our brothers or we shall be in danger of hell, fire, or Gehenna. In Matthew 5, 30, Jesus says that unless one resists the temptations of the flesh, his whole body will be cast into hell. In Matthew 10, 28, he says, rather than fearing the one who can only kill your body, you should fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell or Gehenna. In Matthew 18, verse 9, he again says that a person must control and resist the temptations of the flesh, lest he be cast into hell fire or Gehenna. In Mark 9, 43, he refers to hell or Gehenna as the fire that shall never be quenched. In Matthew 23, 15, he warns the scribes and Pharisees that they are making each one of their converts twice as much a son of hell or Gehenna as themselves. Matthew 23, 33, he asks those same scribes and Pharisees, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? So you see, the loving Jesus had a whole lot to say about hell. And in other passages where the word hell or Gehenna is not used, Jesus makes a, an obvious reference to it. For example, Matthew 8 verse 12. He says that the sons of the kingdom who turn to disobedience will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That expression, weeping and gnashing of teeth, indicates a great deal of misery and torment. Matthew 25, 41. Jesus describes those who are condemned as going into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You know, the devil and his angels have a special place prepared for their eternal habitation. And that will also be the same place where the condemned are sent. Matthew 25, 46, Jesus confirms that there is an eternal place of punishment for the wicked. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, the Apostle Paul said this about those who are sent to hell. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. 
You know, that term, that term everlasting destruction that Paul used, that's a mind-boggling thought. Today, if we destroy a building, we can, we can replace it, build it back with something else, even though the original building is gone. But the destruction in hell goes on and on and on without end. And the other image in that passage from Paul is even more frightening. Being shut out from the presence of the Lord. Hell is the absence of the one who creates and sustains life. We could say that hell is like a permanent isolation ward that is separated from the source of all love and joy and peace. The Apostle John in Revelation 21 verse 8 describes the horrors of hell and those who will be there. He says, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part, look at it, in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Ultimately, hell is far worse than anything we can possibly imagine. The second question that we need to answer is this one. How does God feel about sending people to hell? Does God find joy in sending wicked people to that awful place? Well, Ezekiel 33 verse 11 plainly answers that question. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. The Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is longsuffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So you see, God doesn't want anyone to be lost in hell. The Bible really is largely a collection of case studies, you might say, on how God has tried to rescue people from going in the wrong direction. For example, in the Old Testament, we have the account of Hosea the prophet. Hosea the prophet was commanded by God to marry a prostitute, and her name was Gomer. They had one child, 
But then Hosea suspected that the next two children were not his. Gomer continued to be unfaithful to Hosea. And eventually she left Hosea for another man. But Hosea did not give up on his wife Gomer. When she was down to nothing, reduced to nothing, and was put up for sale on the slave market, Hosea bought her freedom and took her back home. So God used Hosea's marriage, you might say, as a visual aid to show the people of Israel that although they were often unfaithful to God, like Hosea, God was a faithful and forgiving husband. The Bible uses many other examples to show God's, God's concern for our souls. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus compared God to a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. But when one of them, just one of them, goes missing, he leaves the 99 and he goes to rescue that one that was lost. In the same chapter, Jesus compared God to a father whose youngest son greatly disappointed and disgraced the father. The boy left home with his inheritance and he wasted it all in, in wicked, riotous living. But still, even though the son had caused the father great pain, his father wanted nothing more than to bring him home. And when the boy returned, his father graciously welcomed him home. Of course, we call that the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus' point in telling those stories and others was to illustrate and show God's mercy and his love. God does not want to lose even one person. God wants everyone to be saved in heaven. God doesn't want anyone to be lost in hell. But if those three statements are true, which they are, then the question becomes, how can there be an all-powerful God who wants something, but that doesn't happen? If God doesn't want anyone to be lost in hell, then why doesn't he just save everyone in heaven? Well, there's another factor that we have to look at as it relates to God's character. You see, God is not a, a one-sided being. Yes, God is infinite in his love. But there are other characteristics of God that are just as infinite and just as important as his love. And here's one of them. 
The Bible also describes God as being a God of justice. A God of justice. For example, Psalms 89, 14 says, referring to God, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Deuteronomy 32 says, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. So what is justice? What is justice? One dictionary definition is the quality of being just, impartial, or fair. Now to us today, one example of justice would be when a person commits a crime, they receive a just and fair punishment for the crime they have committed. So if God is a God of justice and people who break God's law are punished, then how, how can that be reconciled with God's love? Imagine that there's a judge in a certain city. And this judge walks into his courtroom one day and he says... All right, today I'm not going to sentence anyone to any kind of punishment, whatever. It doesn't matter who comes to me today or what they've done. I feel so loving that I'm just going to let everybody off scot-free. Now, what would you say about a judge who did that? Would you say that he is administering justice? Well, the answer is a big no. A big no. Many people would likely say that if a judge did that, <clears throat> that he needs to be removed from his position and somebody else put in his place that will administer justice. The basic principle of justice is that a person who commits a crime receives the just and fair punishment that is due. And an all-knowing God would be the best possible judge to deliver justice. Psalm 7 verse 11 says that God is a just judge. 2 Timothy 4a says that God is a righteous judge. He would be fair and he would be just, as infinitely just as he is infinitely loving. Now, a major objection that some people today have to the doctrine of hell is its everlasting, eternal nature. An atheist or a skeptic might make this argument. Is it justice 
for somebody to be punished forever, eternally, when he or she has only been devoted to evil for a relatively short time here on earth. Is that justice? So what do you think? Is that a valid argument? In other words, in legal terms, in legal terms, does the length of punishment depend on the amount of time that it takes to commit the crime? Well, no. That's absolutely not true. And here's an example. Suppose that a man walks into a bank to rob it, and the man takes a semi-automatic pistol and shoots one of the bank tellers. He robs the bank. He's later caught by the police. And he's put on trial, and he's found guilty. Suppose that he's sentenced to life in prison for that crime. Would you say, oh, that's not fair. That's not fair because it only took him like two minutes to rob the bank. And he's going to suffer for that crime for the rest of his earthly life. That's not fair. You see, justice often demands that the punishment is much longer than it takes to commit the crime. And we understand that. We understand that in our earthly judicial system. But some people don't want to understand it in God's judicial system. Now, let's look at the, the flip side of that. Have you ever heard anybody argue this? It's morally wrong for God to reward a person eternally for a short earthly time of obedience and righteousness. Have you ever heard that? Now, I've never heard anybody make that argument, and I dare say that you haven't either. So here's the point I'm making. If it's just unfair for the righteous to receive an eternal reward, then it's also just unfair for the unrighteous to receive eternal punishment. So how does the idea of justice relate to God's love? How do we put those two together? And that goes back to our question today. How can a loving God send people to hell? What does God's love and God's justice demand that he allow of every person in the world? What that demands is that God allows people to choose. He allows people to choose. And that means, that means that hell is a human choice. There are going to be many, many people who will end up in eternal punishment in hell. 
but they're not going to be there just because God sends them. They're going to be there because they choose to be there by the lives they live. In fact, throughout the Bible, we find that God tells people to choose the way they want to go. Look at these passages. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, Moses says to the Israelites, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. So what was Moses saying to the people? He was saying, you've got two paths in front of you. One of them will lead you to life. One of them will lead you to death. You choose life. Joshua made the same kind of statement to the Israelites. In Joshua 24, that Caleb read, Joshua said this, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And he goes on to say, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He had made his choice. Joshua was saying, you have the ability and the God-given responsibility to choose which way you will go. And whatever way you choose, God will let you go there. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus made a, a similar statement. He said this, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. So we have a God of infinite love. But there are people for whom it doesn't matter how much love he shows them. They will not follow him and accept his gift of salvation. And because that's the case, then his infinite justice kicks in. The Bible says that God doesn't want anybody to be lost. He wishes that all would be saved. And even though he is all-powerful, and you know he could force everyone to do right according to his love, he cannot do that because he allows people to choose. So what has God done to persuade people against choosing eternal punishment in hell? What has he done? Well, in the Bible, we see God's love outpoured on the cross. We see the broken, bleeding body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross. 
There are two ways, two ways that a person can choose to go, two roads they can take. One to eternal life, another one to eternal destruction. And that is true for all people, for every accountable person here today or listening to this sermon. That's true. On the road to destruction, there are the passing pleasures of sin and the temptations that Satan puts along the way that would entice a person to choose and stay on that road, on that path. But planted directly in the middle of the road to destruction is the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, if anyone chooses to go to hell, the New Testament says in a very real sense that they will go to hell over God's dead body. God basically says to us, I'm not going to allow you to choose hell without putting something that's the most persuasive thing that I can put in your way. And that's the dying body of Christ on the cross. I want you to look at what Hebrews 10.29 says to us. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot counting the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. Now can you visualize in your mind the picture that's, that's painted there for you and for me and for all people? There's the wide road to destruction. And there's the cross of Christ planted firmly in the middle of that road to destruction. And if a person chooses to go to hell, then that person will have to trample the blood of Jesus Christ under his feet. God says to mankind, you don't have to be in torment for all eternity. You can be saved if you choose to be saved. And he plants the cross of Christ in the middle of the road to destruction. And the sins of all the people who have chosen that route can be laid on the shoulders of Jesus by obedience to him. Is there a place of eternal punishment? Yes, there is. Hell is real, and hell is eternal. Is there a loving, just God who doesn't want anybody to perish? Yes, there is. 
Will people end up in hell in that place of eternal punishment? The answer is yes. The Bible says there are many who will. Does that cancel out the morality of God? And the answer is no, it does not, because any person who finds himself or herself in hell, as we said, will have chosen to go there. You see, nobody goes to hell by accident. Nobody goes because of a messed up judgment. Anyone who goes will choose his or her own eternal destination. And that's why the writer C.S. Lewis said that hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. God loves us so much that he will let his heart be broken by allowing us to choose. And he will honor our choice. The true story is told about a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion to live. The two children had the same rare blood type. So the little boy was the perfect match, the perfect donor. So the doctor asked the little boy, will you give your blood to your sister? The boy hesitated and his lower lip began to tremble. And then he said, sure, for my sister. So both children were taken into the hospital room and the nurse got them ready for the transfusion. When the procedure was almost over, the little boy asked the doctor the question, Doctor, when do I die? It was then that the doctor realized why the boy had hesitated and why his lips had trembled when he agreed to give his blood. The little boy thought that giving his blood to his sister meant giving up his life. And he was willing to do that for her. You see, God has already done for you and for me what the boy only thought he was doing for his sister. In Christ, in Christ, the debt that we accumulate by sin is canceled. In Christ, we can live in anticipation of heaven, not in the threat of hell. God has made himself very clear. He wants to find his lost sheep. 
He wants to welcome the prodigal sons and daughters back home. But God is equally clear that there is a place called hell for those who choose to reject his invitation. God won't force us to love him and follow him. And if people won't love him and put him first in their lives because they love themselves and this world more, then they can't be with him for all eternity. C.S. Lewis, the writer that we just mentioned, concludes his discussion of hell by saying this. He says there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are going to hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. Some people will choose hell instead of heaven. Some will choose to be their own God rather than love and obey and follow the one true God who gave his son to die on the cross to save them. So the question today is, which one will you choose? If you're not in Christ today, added to the one true church that he established on the day of Pentecost, then he invites you to come to him today in faith believing that he is indeed the divine Son of God. He invites you to come today in repentance of your sins. He invites you to come in confession of his name and who he is and then be even baptized, immersed in water for the remission of sins. And if you're in Christ today, but you haven't lived faithfully to him. And if there's public sin in your life that needs to be confessed in a public way, today Christ offers you his invitation. As together we stand and sing.